Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. It's great to see everyone this morning. Um, if I don't know you, I think there's a few I see I don't know. My name is David, and I'd love to. Sorry. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, oh, that's fine. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just read our whole text for today, and then pray, and we will get started. It comes from uh, the book of James. If you have the have a Bible, there's a few I know in the back, uh, and it comes from James chapter two, verses 14 through 26. I'm just going to read those real quick. James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and hear your word. Father, I pray that you would give uh, each of us Uh, just your spirit, that you would uh, give clarity of thought and expression, that you would uh, help my words to be clear. Uh, I pray that you would convict our hearts uh, to understand your word, that we might not harden our hearts to hard or difficult truths, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring uh, just light and grace to our lives, and that rather than uh, being discouraged, Lord, that we might uh, be uh, encouraged Uh, and our love for you, encouraged to delight in you and do uh, that which you command, Lord. Pray that we might love you more today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So about a month ago, on December 18th, uh, December 18th, there was a huge football game. Players from each team talked all week about its importance. Fans hoped and prayed that their team would be successful. And at the end of the game, fans of one team were really excited, and fans of another were very frustrated. Now, if you're like me from the United States of America, and were cursed with being a fan of the football franchise from Washington, then you know the game I'm talking about is the Washington Commanders versus the New York Giants. The game's time got moved to prime time. It was a huge game. The winning team had a sure shot at the playoffs. The losing team did not. My team, Washington, of course, lost. And I was very frustrated after the football game. As expected, my team did not make the playoffs, and the winning team did. They lost the big football game. 
Now, if you're not like me, and say you're from almost anywhere else in the world, especially if you're from France or Argentina, there was another really big football game on December 18th. That was the same day as the World Cup final. It was an incredibly important football game. The winners were elated, their whole country was really excited, and the losing team and country were dejected. See, that word, football, can have very different meanings in different contexts. Unless we're clear about the context of its usage, we can be very, very confused. Our use of words can't be taken out of the context in which we use them. So why am I bringing this up this morning? Well, if you were here back throughout the fall, I'm thinking specifically, I know on October 16th, I preached on Galatians chapter 5. And one of the main points I tried to hit in that sermon through Galatians, and I know Graham and Dylan and I, we each tried to hit it throughout this sermon series in Galatians, is that we are justified or made right before God. We are saved by faith alone and not by our works. The series was called Call to Freedom, and we talked a lot about being free from the burden of trying to earn our way uh, to God, earn our salvation, but rather putting our faith in Christ. Paul, throughout his letters, hammers that point home. You shouldn't put your trust in your own ability, your own ability to do good, but should uh, humbly recognize your sinfulness and cry out to God. We should trust that the sacrifice of Christ is what can redeem us from sin. It's not the doing of good works that redeems us. So with that context in mind, our text today can seem confusing or even contradictory. James here, as we just saw and as we'll see again in a moment, encourages Christians toward doing good works. He even goes so far as to say in verse 24 that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. So we're left with a question that Christians have been asking for hundreds, really thousands of years. Do Paul and James contradict each other? And if they do, what does that say about the Bible? Can we trust it? How do we know we're saved? Are we saved by faith, by works? And can these two books, can these two teachings that seem, on the surface, contradictory, be reconciled? So my goal today in the sermon is, is twofold. As always, I want to just walk us through the text. I want us to be convicted by the text. I don't want to just sort of explain it away or soften the seriousness of James's words. But secondly, I do want us to see that I believe James and Paul do not contradict each other. In fact, they agree. Thus, throughout the sermon, I'll be making some references to New Testament books, specifically to Romans and Galatians, in order to demonstrate that Paul and James are speaking in different contexts and to different issues. Ultimately, I believe there's ample evidence in both of their writings that they are in agreement and thus that the scriptures can be trusted. Now, I know for me, this text, really the whole book of James, is one that brings great conviction. Conviction to me for my apathy, conviction of selfishness, favoritism, my use of words. We'll see that a lot, especially next week in chapter 3. The book of James tells me, and it tells us, that we know the right thing to do, we know how we should act, we know how we should treat others and care for the needy and love our neighbor. We know these things, so we should do them. Thus, as James said in the first chapter, let us not be hearers of God's word only, but doers. Let's begin by looking at verses 14 through 17. They show us that faith without works is not actually or true faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith, 
by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is not true faith. When we believe something to be true, we act on it. I believe the metro will take me where I need to go in the morning, that it'll be on time, at least relatively speaking, so I go to the metro station. If we believe God's commands, if we trust that God will provide what we need, if we believe his word in the many places that God makes his concern and care for the needy abundantly clear, then how do we not share this concern? James is continuing a theme he's made all throughout this book. Last week we learned about the problem of favoritism. James specifically mentions uh, if someone uh, from a rich or poor come into your assembly, how would you react? At the end of chapter 1, what does he say true religion is? He says it's helping widows and orphans in their need. Thus, concern for the needy has been a recurring theme in this book. So here he begins by asking us about faith. He says in verse 14, if someone says they have faith and not works, can that faith save him? So what is that faith? Well, I think I could argue that, and it can be shown throughout our text, that that faith is not the same faith Paul talks about. It is not true faith, and as he'll say in a moment, it is useless. In these verses, the person with that faith is someone who claims that they have faith as an excuse to ignore those in need. It's someone who's willing to turn their back on others while claiming to be right with God. If we can look upon those in need and rationalize away not helping them by saying, well, look, I got faith, okay, so go ahead, go be warmed, be filled, uh, go in peace, that's not true faith. It's just another way of our sinful flesh rationalizing our sinful nature. We don't want to do what God commands, so we fall back on saying, well, at least I've got faith. To go back for just a second to Paul in Galatians, he actually says the same thing. In Galatians chapter 5, right after boldly proclaiming that we're free from the requirement to work for our salvation and telling us about freedom in Christ, Paul says in verse 13 of that chapter, he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Thus, even to Paul, true faith results in acts of love and service. So about five and a half years ago, almost six, I started a new job at the time, teaching middle and high school. While I taught a few different classes at this school, my main job, it was a sort of classical education school, my main job was to teach formal logic to all the school's eighth graders. If you're wondering why, I'm getting my PhD and want to teach college and graduate students, it's because I spent two years teaching formal logic to 13-year-olds. Uh, I barely made it two years. It was, it was an experience. So my overall goal in this class is to teach them to make good, thoughtful arguments, and I meant teaching common logical or fallacies or mistakes. And one familiar uh, uh, logical fallacy we talked about was called equivocation. You might be familiar with this word. It's, it's meaning in everyday talk is the same as in formal logic. It's when you use the same word in two different ways, kind of like football at the beginning of the sermon. I would ask my students, I'd say, all right, is this argument valid? I'd say, premise one, the prisoners are in the cells. Premise two, my body is made up of cells. Therefore, conclusion, the prisoners are in my body. Right? I told the prisoners are in the cells. I defined what cells are, so it logically flows, right? It makes sense. Well, it's obviously false. Why? Because the word cells is used in two very different ways. Again, it's the same idea with football at the beginning. So James asks us in verse 14, can that faith save him? 
And his use of faith is different from Paul's, right? Paul, when he talks about faith, faith is trusting in God and God's promises. And it's specifically differentiated from trying to work in order to earn salvation. In James, faith, what he's arguing, arguing against, is an intellectual belief. It's an excuse weaponized to keep you from love and good works. Ultimately, James is confronting us with the reality that a faith that's just in your head is not true saving faith. David Platt, a pastor who wrote a commentary on James, put it this way. I found it helpful. He said, the overflow of the Christian's heart is to serve, and the Christian's external acts of mercy are clear evidence of the internal mercy of God in their heart. James makes it clear, a faith that can look upon the needy while doing nothing is not faith that justifies. It's not true faith in Jesus, and it's not a faith that can save. Faith without works is not true faith. Verse 18 goes on to say, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We see in these verses that biblical faith is not simply knowledge. As I said previously, again, it's not just intellectual assent to some truths. James defines that faith that he brought up in the previous verses, now using the example of someone who would say, well, look, you've got faith, I've got works. But once again, this demonstrates that someone with that faith is merely using this to rationalize, in this case, it looks like, apathy. James goes a little bit further, though. See, in verse 19, this hypothetical person claims belief in God. This person claims to have some level of knowledge about God as a, as a justification for their faith. James is quick to point out that even the demons believe true things about God. By saying in verse 18, or sorry, it's, uh, it's verse 19, by saying you believe that God is one, he's actually making a reference to what's called the Shema. You guys might have heard of this, maybe not. Um, it's, it would be well known to many uh, Jews, especially Jews of the day. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4, and it was something that Jewish children especially often had to recite. It's where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it goes on to say how they will keep God's teachings. But it begins by saying, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And they would recite it all the time. So this is James's way of saying, Listen, you might be able to recite all the, the things, you know, all the Bible answers. You can have all the right answers. You can recite the proper things. But so can the demons. Look, I would never ever wanted to discourage anyone from studying the Bible or learning more about God. I think that is genuinely important, and I think true, genuine faith demonstrates itself in good works and wants to learn more about God. But let's not be confused. Knowledge about God is not what will save you. Simply knowing things about God and using the excuse, well, I have faith. Here are all the things I can recite, so I don't actually have to love my neighbor, right? makes us no better than demons. That seems harsh. Well, that's exactly what James says in this text. You know, as I prepared this sermon and thought about what James is say, saying here, I had vivid memories uh, of my father. Not because he's like a demon, but just vivid memories of my father. Sorry. <laughs> Awkward transition there. Um, like many young boys growing up, uh, I frequently did dumb things. Like sinful things, but also just really dumb things didn't really matter if there was something I was supposed to do and didn't do, or something I wasn't supposed to do and did do, I messed up a lot. And as I became a teenager, 
I developed a pretty typical teenager attitude. And if I was shown my mistakes or questioned, I would typically uh, snap back at my parents and say, I know, okay? I know. I get it. You were supposed to do this. I know. Stop questioning me. You know, why did you do it that way? I know, I know, okay? I was, yeah, it was great. But on many occasions, matters important and unimportant, I remember beginning to say, I know, and I started recounting all the facts, all the reasons I knew what I did was dumb. I knew I shouldn't do it. And I remember many times my dad just looking at me and saying, if you know it up here, but you don't know it in here, you don't know it at all. And I was, I usually got me quiet pretty quickly. <laughs> and this, I believe, is the point James is making. We can know things in our head. When we read in Scripture that God cares for the needy and looks compassionately upon the poor, we can snap back and say, I know. Stop bringing it up. It makes me uncomfortable. But if there's no action, it's right to wonder if we really grasp what that means. I know I have to wrestle with that. Yes, we may, on an intellectual level, know things about God and what He's like, but do we delight in doing things that are close to the heart of God? True faith changes us and will result in works. James expands upon this idea that good works complete or perfect faith, that, as he has just said, right, he can show his faith by his works in the final verses of our passage. We'll turn now to verse 20. Uh, 20 through 26. It says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Good works complete, as he says in uh, verse 23, or 22, they complete true faith. It's in these verses that James and Paul are most often put at odds. So we walk through the text. I will want to look at a few scripture passages that people sort of point out to put them at odds with each other. But first, let's ask, what is James saying? We can get to Paul in a minute, but I want to allow the text to speak for itself. James uses the example of Abraham to make his point. See, in verse 21, he refers back to the story of God testing Abraham uh, and asking him to sacrifice his son. If you recall, we went through the life of Abraham last summer. I actually had the privilege of preaching on that passage in July. I remember it well. What was Abraham's response to God? When God called him to take his son, his only son Isaac, through whom the promise was to come, and sacrifice him, how did Abraham respond? Did he say, look, God, I got faith. They have works. Why don't you talk to one of them? Find someone with works to do it, because I'm the faith guy. I have faith. No. Abraham obeyed. He did what God asked him to do. James is using Abraham as an example of faith and works coming together. We understand intuitively that Abraham would not have obeyed unless he actually believed God, right? He believed that God was trustworthy. And how do we know he thought God was trustworthy? Well, he actually did what God asked. To use James' terminology, he worked. 
How many of you have ever had, either at a school or a new job or sports team, like a team building day? Anyone? Yeah. They are, uh, they're interesting. At these events, it's fairly common to do a bunch of kind of dumb activities that bring a group together. In my experience, they usually succeed. They bring us all together, hating that we have to do all the stuff. But one common activity at these things is called a trust fall. Right? Have you ever son or seen or done this? Someone stands usually on a table like with their hands like this, and people line up behind them on their team with their hands out. And the idea is that you fall into the arms of your team without looking, and you trust them. You trust that they'll catch you, and you don't look back. I actually, I did it once, and there's a split second there as you're falling in which you have that thought run through your mind real quick. Are they actually going to catch me? Because I just fell backwards. I hope they're actually there. That's the idea of a trust fall. Now imagine someone stands up on the table, gets ready to fall backwards, and they say, listen up. I promise you guys, I believe in you. I trust that you can catch me. I know you can do it. I have full faith and confidence that you all will catch me. And then steps down and walks away. Did they actually trust the people? Did they have faith? Well, it's admittedly kind of a frivolous situation, but it demonstrates our point. person's faith is completed, to use James's words, or it's shown to be real by the act of actually falling. Again, had Abraham said, uh, listen, God, seriously, I trust you. I mean it. I really believe in you, God. But I'm not actually going to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. Like, come on. I believe you. I trust you. I have faith. But really, not going to do that. Come on. Faith that does not obey, it doesn't act, is not faith at all. Faith is completed or shown to be real when it results in action. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, you'll know them by their fruit. After talking about Abraham, James was on to discuss Rahab. If you're unfamiliar with Rahab, she was a prostitute in the Old Testament. She was a resident of Jericho, a city in the Promised Land. You might remember Jericho as a city that the Israelites were famously told to walk around seven times and the walls would come down. That happened in Joshua chapter 6. But earlier in Joshua chapter 2, uh, Israel sent spies or messengers into the land to kind of see what it was like there. And the authorities of Jericho found them out, and they were given refuge by Rahab, and Rahab actually helped them escape. She says to them in uh, Joshua chapter 2, I've heard about your God, I heard how he parted the sea, and I believe you all, I believe God has given you this land. And as she lets them escape, she says, when you come and take over the city, please, 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 like, save me and my family. Well, sure enough, a few chapters later, Israelites, they take the city, they get Jericho, and guess what? They save Rahab and her family. She had helped the Israelite messengers escape. So we may ask ourselves, was Rahab saved because of her faith or her works? James says she was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Why did she do that? On a whim? No, she acted based on belief. We may say based on faith that these messengers were of God. And like Abraham, like the point James has been making all along, Rahab's faith that the messengers were of God and her actions in helping them worked together. Her belief was shown to be real by her actions. Like verse 18 says, she showed her faith by her works. Had Rahab said, listen, Israelites, I get it. Your God part of the sea. He, he's given you this land. Listen, I hear all that, but I could get in real trouble for helping you. So I'm not really going to actually do that. I mean, I, I trust in all that you're from God, but I'm not really going to do anything about it. 
we would wonder if she actually believed what she said to believe. James points out the works she did that were evidence of her trust in God. She's also mentioned in the book of Hebrews as someone of, uh, specifically praised for her faith. Again, in the life of a Christian, faith and works are not at odds with each other. And make no mistake, James starts this chapter by making clear he's talking in this chapter to Christians, to the church. If you're talking to unbelievers, the whole first half of chapter 2 would make no sense, right? He says to them, if someone comes into your assembly who's rich and someone comes into your assembly who's poor, how do you react? That would make no sense if he was talking not to the church. So as I turn briefly to look at James and Paul, remember James is specifically talking to those who have at least claimed to be Christians. So let's spend just a couple minutes talking about James and Paul. I believe that the scriptures are true, they're the word of God, and thus they don't have contradictions. And two, if it looks like they do, we shouldn't be afraid to examine them. So we're going to look at a couple texts here, keeping in mind what we've talked about with context and use of words, because I think those things are crucial for biblical interpretation. So be thinking as we look at these verses to try to see who Paul and James are talking to and what they're talking about. First, I want to briefly look at James 2, 21-23, next to Romans chapter 4. The passage in Romans will be on the screen here in just a moment. But we see already in James 2, 21-23, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. In Romans... Paul uses very similar uh, references to Abraham, but interprets them differently. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He goes on in that chapter, this is Romans chapter 4, to say, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And he ends the chapter saying, this talk about it being counted to Abraham as righteousness, he says, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, and it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, so what do we make of these two passages? They both use Abraham, but they interpret his life very differently. Well, for starters, they both quote Genesis 15, 6. It's this text that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So then does Abraham believing God and it being counted to him as righteousness mean he was justified by faith or works? I think how we discuss this question lies in who and what Paul and James are talking about and talking to. Paul is arguing against those who wanted to make people obey the Old Testament Mosaic law in order to be saved. He's saying you cannot do enough things to earn God's favor. You won't be saved by being circumcised on the eighth day or bringing the right animal to the sacrifice or doing enough good deeds. That can't save you. Abraham believed God's promises, and that was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul wants to point out that this happened before that Old Testament law was even given. So Abraham couldn't have been saved by obeying a law that wasn't even in existence yet. He was saved because he believed in God. Paul's saying, if you're trying to earn your way to God, stop. Just as Abraham was made right with God because he believed God before the law was given, so you can be made right with God by believing in him. 
There are not enough good things you can do to outweigh your sin. You need to trust in Jesus. Only he can save you. James is talking to Christians. Again, those who have claimed to put their faith in Christ. He's arguing against those who claim a faith that they use as an excuse to avoid doing good. Those who claim simple knowledge about God as faith. Therefore, he uses Abraham as an example of someone who had faith, and then that faith led to obedience. He did what God commanded. He worked. Abraham believed God, and James wants to emphasize, how do we know he believed God? He obeyed. He worked. His belief resulted in action. James is saying, listen, if you want to claim the faith of Abraham, Abraham didn't just sit around and say, I've got faith, you've got works. If you want to claim the faith of Abraham, do what Abraham did. If you have true faith, James wants to say, you will not sit idle, you will obey. By saying that Abraham's faith was active along with his works, James is arguing that we know Abraham's belief was genuine because we see the evidence, we see the fruit, we see his obedience. Both James and Paul recognize that we come to Christ in faith and that the ensuing life of faith is one that longs to obey God. Now let's just briefly turn to James 2.24 and Romans 3.28. James 2.24, our text today, it says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It was this that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, he really said he didn't like the book of James because of this. He thought it should be thrown in the fire. And then, ironically, if you read his later writings, he basically makes the same exact argument as James. But that's neither here nor there. Notice first, Paul is once again focused on works of the law, Old Testament laws, right? You have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to do these sacrifices to be saved, that sort of thing. In this context, once again, Paul is arguing against those who would say they have to do certain works to earn their salvation. He's boldly proclaiming that you cannot do enough good things, follow enough rules to be right with God. You must trust that Jesus Christ is enough to save you. James, again, in his context, is arguing against those who claim faith as an excuse for idleness. Those who claim an intellectual knowledge about God as an excuse to ignore his commands. So let us allow, church, James's message to hit with proper force. If our professed faith does not result in works that honor God, there is good reason to wonder if we have true faith. Of course, I don't know anyone's heart, but the Lord does, and that's kind of the point. Again, I find David Platt helpful here. He says, I don't envision James and Paul standing toe-to-toe with each other with contrary understandings of the gospel. Instead, they're standing back-to-back with each other fighting two different enemies and together defending a unified understanding of the gospel. Although I'm also left to wonder how Paul might answer someone in the situation James is in. Right, I've mentioned in the passage just cited, they have different contexts, they're addressing different needs. But as we looked earlier in Galatians 5, when Paul talks about freedom, he does say, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And I think the beginning, actually, of Romans chapter 6 offers a great glimpse into this, right? The passages on the screen were from the book of Romans, where Paul's saying you're saved by grace through faith. And he gets to chapter 6 of that book, and Paul says this at the beginning. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. See, Paul recognized that someone could twist his teaching to think, well, if we're saved by faith, then I can just do whatever I want. 
the same kind of thing James is talking about. And Paul has the same response. Someone who uses the free gift of God's grace through faith as an excuse to sin uh, is condemned by both of them. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6 through 8 to explain that one who has faith in Christ, who has received the gift of salvation, will live a new spirit-filled life. They won't be perfect, they won't be free from struggle, but they will have new desires. Here's the bottom line. James and Paul each have contexts in which they address the same issue. Those who, using sort of human reasoning, argue that one's faith can free them, from, free them to sin and free them from doing good works. Paul is clear that this is not what he means by freedom. Here we might use the terms that theologians use all the time, justification and sanctification. We're justified. In other words, we're initially made right before God through faith and faith alone. You can't earn that. Then as the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts throughout our life, we should look more and more like Jesus. It's called sanctification. What James is saying is if there's no sanctification, if there's no evidence of looking more and more like Jesus, honestly, he has the guts to ask, was there ever justification? Were we ever made right before God in the first place if there's no resulting action? Thus, when confronted with the idea that someone can use faith as an excuse for lack of love or apathy or, or, or lack of love to their neighbor, Paul and James have the same response. They are disgusted. Now, I hope looking at these texts reminds us of the importance of context as we read our Bible. And right, we know this from experience. We can hold the same beliefs but give different emphases in different contexts. Let me put it this way. I want, genuinely, I want every one of you to grow in your love of God and to become closer to the Lord. And I also want that for my children. Now, I have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. I will probably talk to any of you about things differently than I talk to them. Different contexts, different emphases, right? Different needs. Same goals. I don't have different beliefs. It's just the way we put them forth will differ sometimes in context. To those tempted to believe that they need to fulfill a bunch of laws, to clean themselves up before God, Paul boldly proclaims that they need to humble themselves and recognize they cannot earn God's favor but need to have faith. To those tempted to think, well, now I've got faith, so I can do whatever I want. I don't really need to worry. You know, if I have a really cold heart towards my neighbor, eh, no biggie, I've got faith. James boldly proclaims that faith without works is dead. And this is why I think the example of Abraham is so helpful, why they both use Abraham. In Abraham, we have a great model of, uh, of, of a life of faith that results in works. Here was a man who in Genesis chapter 12 is called by God to leave his country, leave his family, go nowhere, go somewhere you've never been before. All he had to go on was a promise from God. The scriptures tell us of no works he did prior to that point. God gave him a gift, a promise, not on the basis of his works. So what did Abraham do? He obeyed. He went where God commanded. And then in Genesis 22, when God tested him and asked him to sacrifice his son... What did he do? He didn't say, well, I've got faith, they've got works. No, he had faith in God's promise and he obeyed what God called him to do. His belief was not intellectual assent to some truths. It wasn't an excuse to do nothing. No, he, because he believed God, he got up and went to a far country. Later, he took his son up to be sacrificed. You don't do these things unless you actually believe that God is trustworthy. As we conclude, I just want to emphasize again, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. 
There are not enough good things you can do to earn right standing before God. This was the freedom Paul talked about in Galatians. But if we aren't careful, as Paul himself warned, our flesh can twist that truth. Twist that freedom to believe that our faith excuses us from living lives that honor God. It will twist the freedom we have in Christ to tell us that we can do whatever we want. Therefore, with, to those with that temptation, boldly says faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith, if you say that all you need uh, is Christ, even the demons know that. My question is, has that truth changed you? We say, and rightly so, come just as you are. It's true, it's wonderful. We don't need to clean ourselves up or hide our sin, pretend to be someone we're not before God. Our text today, though, and this word from James, compels me to add to that statement, yes, come just as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. If you came as you were and put your faith in Christ, again, has the truth changed you? Do you now long to do good? Do you long to do acts that bring glory to your creator, the one who saved you, the one who gave you new life? Again, I know I've wrestled much with this text this week. If you ask me, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? I would hardly say yes. But I think of how often I find myself wanting to say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Just please don't inconvenience me. How often do I find myself with apathy towards those in need or find myself rationalizing away selfishness or a lack of self-control, that angry outburst or that show of favoritism? The book of James is one that shakes us from our apathy. It asks, again, the pointed question that if these things are true, if we believe these things about God, about Christ, about salvation, about his provision, his character, if they're true, then shouldn't they be reflected in our life? Church, let's continue to wrestle with this. Let's not be those who say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but do nothing to provide for people's needs. There are opportunities. There's the food bank. There's needs both I know, within and outside of the church. Often, I can speak for myself, lack of action isn't because I don't know where needs are. It's because I'm unwilling to be vulnerable or uncomfortable or to sacrifice. I know where needs are, so why do nothing? I want to conclude by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. No matter where you are spiritually today, I want to let these verses penetrate deep into your heart. I think they're probably the best place in Scripture to really uh, get at these two, two points. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Today, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, let me repeat, it is a gift from God. It is not a result of works. Today, life with God is available to you. If you're trapped in your sin, separated from God, you will not have peace. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Trust that his death has paid the penalty for sin that you deserved, and you too can be right with God. Christ took on your punishment and then rising, raising from the grave, defeated death for you. Trust in him. He's gracious and merciful, and he has the gift of salvation. Trust in him. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. I know others would as well. And today, church, let us never forget verse 10. We are not saved so that we can sit back and look down upon the world with contempt. We're not saved so we can do our own thing. 
We've been renewed. We've been, as it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. So today, if you have faith in Christ, let's walk in good works. Love God, love your neighbor, but don't simply love your neighbor with words, love with deeds. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.